First Corinthians chapter 13. I don't know if there's a better chapter in the Bible. I think you could argue it's the high point of First Corinthians and maybe scripture, right? It's amazing, it's incredible, it's unreal, but it's also one of the most divisive chapters. How ironic is that? Why? Well, because of verse eight, where it says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So there's two main groups of people that are Christians. One group, very smart people that I read and admire and love. They say prophecies and tongues and miracles continue on for today. They're called continuationists. And then on the other side, people that I love and respect and they're way smarter than me and they're amazing Bible students and I've learned so much from them. They say, no, it ceased with the apostles. And this is one of the texts that they use to decide which side of the line you land on. And if you're questioning where we're at, James did a great job in chapter 12 of just the balance that we try to find in that, right? That the spirit gives gifts as the spirit teaches. We can't sit here and demand something. It's we are humbly praying, expectantly waiting and allowing the spirit to move as the spirit moves. So you can pick up what James talked about last week, brilliant, okay? But it just amazes me. The chapter on love also is the chapter that divides us. I don't know if you've ever read Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift. He has this great little statement in it, and he says this. He says, we have just enough religion to make us hate each other, but not enough religion to make us love each other. How funny is that, right? How true is that? Well, my hope is we get a little bit more love because I think it's actually easier to be like an orthodox person, like this is doctrine instead of being a loving person. I think it's easier to like be right and rebuke people than actually to be kind and gracious and walk through them when they do things that are difficult. It's easier but it certainly is not better. Something happens when we don't do things in love. I'll give you an example. This is from many years ago, probably 14, 15 years. Edgewater was in its infancy. I had not gone to school yet. Um, and I decided to do a series called the Doubting Series. And I, the first message I gave was my own testimony, how at Oregon State, I took a course by a professor and he just dismantled my faith. And I went through a real season of doubt. And I titled this series, Doubt's Not a Dirty Word. Because the way that I was received in church in 93, 94 was, oh, don't bring doubt in here. We believe in here. No doubters in here. And so it was just like this weird, like, well, then where do I go? Because I'm kind of plagued by these doubts. So I just shared that. And I said, you know what? People in the Bible doubted. And I read John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist who was born when his mom was like 150 years old. He doubts, right? Jesus comes, they're both in the womb, and he does a backflip in Elizabeth's stomach. And she's like, oh great, he's gonna be ADHD. This is crazy, and I'm 150 years old, right? Jesus appears to him and says, hey, baptize me. John does. Heaven's open, hears God's voice, dove descends on him. Whoa, okay, that's pretty amazing. But you fast forward to chapter 11 or he's in prison now. And he sends two disciples to say, ask Jesus if he's the one. Because this just doesn't make sense to me right now. If he's the one, why am I in prison? Right? I should have at least a three-bedroom house with a two-camel garage and a swimming pool because I'm a baptizer, right? I need it. Why am I in prison? And he's plagued by doubt. And then I read Matthew 28. After the death burial and resurrection of Jesus. He appears to his disciples. He's about ready to ascend into heaven. And it says this, the disciples were all there, but some doubted. 
I just, what? Like, they're like, nah, I don't know about this. I got a brother-in-law in Vegas who does this stuff. I just don't know, you know? Like, so I, I'm introducing it by, listen, it's okay to doubt. It's what you do with your doubt that matters, right? So that was the whole series. So, so I get done and it's a testimony. So there's a different level of what that takes out of you because you're sharing something very deeply personal. So I, had, I had, and we were at Fruitdale Elementary at the time. So I get done and I get off the stage and I go into the hallway out there. I'm talking with people and this lady, she just goes, just beelines for me, like shoves somebody out of the way. Is like, I didn't like today's message. I said, well, you know, I'm sorry. She goes, I don't believe a Christian should ever doubt. I said, it was that attitude right there that I found in church that really hurt me. She said, well, Christians should never doubt. We should believe. I said, well, I think Christians doubt and I think it's okay. And she said, well, I don't. She goes, my husband has a doctorate from seminary. I have a master's degree. I've written a book. Do you have a degree? I said, well, I'm running about 104 right now, lady. That's the degrees I've got. She said, I can't come back to this church again. I said, praise the Lord. I can recommend one for you, <laughs> right? So this took about 10 minutes. And then when she was done, she just turned around and there was this guy that had been standing behind her the whole time. And he kind of just looked at me when the lady turned around and he just went, I'm like, you're the husband. He's like, I will pray for you, bro. I will pray for you. Doctorate or not, I'm praying for you. All right, so water off my back. The next morning, Monday morning, she sends me an email. Eight pages, right? She begins by quoting Hebrews chapter 13, right? Be sure to entertain strangers because you are, be sure to be hospitable to strangers because you might be entertaining angels unaware. I'm like, if you are an angel, I'll take the demons because man, at least I know what to expect with them, right? And I just went, spam it. I'm done with that. I'm not, I'm, no. Well, Tuesday morning, I come to work and Mark Scudsat's like, yesterday I got this email. <laughs> Turns out she sent it to every single staff member, right? And Mark's like, man, that poor lady. Matt, do you want to pray for her? I said, no, I do not. <laughs> ah, <laughs> Mark did and I agreed. Here's the problem. In those eight pages, she might've had something good that I could learn from, but guess what? I never read it. Why? Because she wasn't loving. And I don't really care what you have to say. If you're not loving, forget about it. And this is what Paul is going to begin in chapter 13. He's really gonna begin with this argument. Listen, you can do amazing acts with miserable results. You may have had an amazing eight-page thesis that, man, would have helped me and blessed me, but because of your attitude, I just, no, nah, I don't want to hear it from you. So he's just, this brilliant chapter, it's three parts. First, it's, hey, you can have amazing acts with miserable ends. Then act number two is, here's the miraculous cure. It's love, agape love. And then Paul gets real practical at the end, and I love it. He just gives, here's how you live a fail-proof life. Right? Love can be so kind of like, what is that? How do you do all that? So Paul just gives, here's what I do in my life to start walking out what it means to be loving a fail-proof life. So it's brilliant. Let's jump in. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul says, you can have amazing acts with miserable results. And he gives three examples. Number one, the eloquent guy. 
So he goes, you can speak in tongues. You can know 20 languages. You can speak angel. But if you're a jerk, it doesn't matter. You can be super good at the gifts and be bad at Christianity, is what he's saying. And he goes, you're just a sounding gong. Now, we don't have those. Anyone here have a gong? Right? So you got a 21st century this. What's in a really annoying sound? Your baby crying at 3 a.m., right? Your seven-year-old daughter learning the violin. Your son playing the drums when he's four and you're decided that day to quit caffeine. Like that's the annoying sound. That's what he's saying. A cell phone going off in the middle of church. That's my annoying sound. I especially love the person that tries to like freeze like, and everybody else is looking around and they're just the one frozen person. I'm like, I know it's you, just answer it. Like, let's just get it done. I've done it, okay. It's like that. Paul's saying, you can have all these great, powerful things, but man, you can move in the power of the Holy Spirit and have absolutely miserable results because there's no love. The gifted guy, verse two, he speaks prophetically. He's got four bars to heaven, like it is a direct connection to heaven. He understands all mysteries. Man, theologically, he is tight. You cannot stump the chump with him. Any question you have, he can answer. He has memorized entire books of the Bible. Okay, he's got more degrees than a thermometer. The guy has got it going on. He has faith. He has never doubted in his life. Right? He's got the promise keeper, King James Version Bible. He wears the t-shirt, cross-trained, right? Got the bumper stickers on his car, cross hanging from his, bumper, from his mirror. He only plays Christian music, mostly Keith Green in his car. I mean, his car is so holy, it's going to heaven. And here's what he says. Doesn't matter. Zero. This guy reminds me of the prophet Jonah. Right, four bars to heaven. God spoke to him. Has faith. He has so much faith that he disobeys God. Right? That's how much faith he has. He knows if I go up there, I know God's character and I know everyone's going to repent. He had enough faith to know God's going to do this. I'm out of here. You guys know the story. And God does it. And the end of Jonah's book is what? He is mad at God. He's depressed and he's suicidal. Why? Because he had no love. He had no love. Profited him. Nothing. It's not your abilities, and it's not your giftings that make you valuable. It is your love that makes you valuable. And then Paul gives one third example. It's the practical guy. He gives his money all away. He gives his body to be burned, his time, his talents, his treasures, all of them given to the kingdom. But he doesn't do it for love. And Paul says, you'll gain nothing from this. Eloquent guy, gifted guy, practical guy. You still see those three kinds of people in church, you know that? The more mature you get though, here's what I've noticed. The more you kind of center in on one of them. And then you have theology not to do the other ones. Well, I'm the speaking guy. So I don't really do the practical stuff anymore. It's like Mary and Martha, you know? Martha does the practical stuff. I'm Mary, I'm sitting at the feet of Jesus. I don't do that anymore. That's kind of convicting to me. Because here's what I've noticed about new Christians. They almost always seem to do all three. Right? You can't keep them quiet about Jesus. They just talk and talk and talk about Jesus. They want to work in any kind of gifting that they have. They're like, man, I just want to be gifted. And then they're really practical. Yeah, I'll mow the widow's lawn or clean her gutters, or right? I'm like, oh, I got to be careful of sometimes how theology will like actually narrow me down and I don't do the things I should be doing. Like, I think we should all be involved at some level in all three of these, right? But we've got to make sure, got to make sure we have the right ingredients. Because his point is this, your eloquence without love is annoying. Your giftedness without love is of no value. And your practical dedication to works is of no profit unless there's love. That motive matters to God. 
what is motivating me to do anything matters to God. Paul would say it is the love, the agape of Christ that constrains me. That's the motive. So what is the motive? We're going to be told all about what this motive looked like. And it's the miraculous power only comes as the catalyst of the Holy Spirit begins to work in you. This incredible agape love. Listen to the definition of it. This love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is patient. Literally, long-suffering. When you agape someone, and the only way you can love is, guess what? In community. All of these things require someone else. Do you know that? Love requires someone else. The only way you are patient, long-suffering, the only way is, is if someone else is around. That's trying you. And notice something, because patience is linked with something. Not all these are linked with something, but if you have a good translation, it will say, love is patient and kind. They're linked together in the Greek. Because sometimes I think we can go through difficulty, maybe with a person. We can suffer long, and then because we're suffering long, we think it gives us an excuse to kind of be mean, right? Like, oh, I've been putting up with this so long, you know, I'm going to be mean. Love doesn't let you do that. It says love is patient and kind. It links them together. Maybe be like this. I've used this illustration before, but let's say you ask me about my marriage. And my marriage is awesome. I made way above my pay grade. I know that. She's amazing. Awesome. So this is hypothetical. This is not true. But let's say you asked me about my marriage and I responded like this. To tell the truth, bro, that woman sucks the life out of me. But I gave my word and I will be patient and long-suffering. And so for the rest of my long, long, long life, I'm in. Who here would say, man, that is so beautiful. That is agape love right there, bro. I might be long-suffering, but what am I not? I'm not kind. It's got to be both of these. We can say we're patient, but patience is always, when it's with a agape kind of love, it will always be kind. It will be beautifully kind. Suffers long, and it's kind. Love does not envy. Envy is real simple. It's wanting what someone else has. That's envy. I want what you have. I have a study from like 20 years ago from the New York or the LA Times of all places. And they gave this questionnaire to a bunch of people that were making about $65,000 a year. So 20 years ago, that was a good amount of money. And they asked him this hypothetical question. Let's imagine that you could get a raise from $65,000 a year to $100,000 a year. Substantial raise. But all your community, all your friends and all your family, they would get a raise from $65,000 to $250,000. So you move up, but they really move up. So you're the bottom, you got more, but you're still at the bottom of all your peers. The other option was this, everybody goes down. You only go down to $50,000, everybody else goes down to $25,000. Guess what the majority of people chose? Option number two, I don't care if I go down as long as I'm top of the heap. That's envy. Envy always hurts. That was the message to me. Like when you're envious, it's gonna hurt everybody, right? Envy always hurts. What was the first murder in the Bible over? 
Cain was envious that Abel and his sacrifice was accepted to God and he murders him. Why was Joseph sold into slavery? 10 brothers were envious of his abilities and the love that the dad had for him. Why was Jesus Christ murdered? Pilate, Matthew 27, 18, Pilate knew that they had him on trial because they were envious of Jesus' success. See, envy kills. Love, love is not envious. Does not boast. Men, we call this one-upmanship. You know how men do that? Right, someone starts telling a story. Man, I caught this 20-pound salmon. And what does another man have to do? That's a minnow, man. I caught a 40-pounder. Boasting. I think people that are always needing to do that, I think it tells you something about them. It tells me something about myself that I'm insecure. That the securest people know, I don't need to brag. I don't need to tell people about my 41-pounder. I can just say, man, that's a great fish. That's awesome. Let's go eat it right? You don't have to brag. My favorite example of this is William Carey. If you haven't read about William Carey, he's the father of modern missions. And in 1790, he starts to just read the Bible and he sees this missionary fervor that he felt was missing from the church. So he's like, I'm going to start a group and we're going to pray for the nations. And out of that prayer group, about three years later, he ends up going to India and starting the modern day mission movement. And he translates the Bible into 20 languages. The Bible, it's unbelievable. The man is unbelievable. And before that, his job in London was, he was a shoe repairman, just a humble shoe repairman. So he comes back from India one time for this massive dinner that all these important people put on and he's there at the table and this lady says, <clears throat> Mr. Carey, I heard that you were a shoemaker. Kind of a put down. This is what William Carey said. Oh no, I was not a shoemaker. I was just a shoe repair man. Why? Because he was super secure in who he is. He didn't have to one-upmanship. He didn't have to brag about translating the Bible in 20 languages. Why? Because he was secure in his identity in Christ. Really secure people in Christ? Nah, they don't boast because they already know who they are. Love is not arrogant. What's arrogance? It's overestimating your own abilities. It is the opposite of humility. Humility is not, I'm a wretched, nothing, good, no good person. Real humility is an honest evaluation of your skills and your abilities. Really knowing, being self-aware would be humility. And I love people like that. I've invited some people to teach on a Wednesday night, and I love some of the men's response. I know they're scholars. I know that they know the Bible. I know theologically they're awesome. And they're just like, actually, Matt, that's not my gifting. I am much better with one-on-one -on -one relationships. They just know, oh, brilliant, okay. Man, that's Brilliant, that's good. That's good humility, being self-aware. We should all be praying for humility. It is the antithesis of arrogance. Pray, get counsel from people. Sometimes the best way to know what you're good at is to ask people about that, and it keeps you from being arrogant. Love is not rude. What does rude mean? Rude. So what it means, let me try to expand it just one notch because of the digital age we live in. I think, this is a Matt Heverly, this is not in the Bible, but I think it is rude when a real image bearer of God begins to talk to me or talk to you and we stay on an electronic device. I think that's rude. What you're saying to them is, you're not as important as this little whatever I'm on right now. And that is an image bearer of God standing before you, worthy of dignity and respect. It should be, if you're in something really important, hey, just one second, yeah, that's really important. And as quick as possible, you pay attention to the person in front of you. I think it's rude to be on a screen when an image bearer of God is talking to you. Love is not rude. Does not insist 
on its own way. Agape is flexible. Agape is what would you like to do? Where would you like to go? What would you like to watch, right? Even more than that, I think agape is flexible doctrinally. As much as you can be, you flex with people. Francis Schaeffer has this quote. I wrote it down years and years ago, and I've tried to say, that's it. He says, Christian differences are not the end of love, they are the beginning of love. Man, when I differ with another brother, that's not like, ah, get away from me, you heretic. That is the moment that love is actually enacted, right? It's easy to love people that agree with me, right? Because they're right, just like me, that's easy. It's difficult and love kicks in when someone is different and that's the beginning of love. So I wanna be that person, not insisting on my own way, generous in spirit. Love is not irritable. I just have that circled. Okay, because I can get irritable. All right, Lord, help me on that one. So when I'm really good at it, I'll preach on it. Now I just have it circled and I pray about it. It's not resentful. Some translations have it this way. Doesn't keep a record of wrong. But isn't that resent? When I am feeling resentful for somebody, what am I doing? I'm replaying the record of wrong that they've done against me. How much of our free thinking time, when you're not actively engaged in conversation or whatever it is, how much of our free thinking time is spent resenting, rehearsing past wrongs that people have done for you? It might be a good discipline sometimes just to really like start marking it out. Man, I just spent the last five minutes resentful. The last 15 minutes resentful. Because there's a danger to it, to rehearsing that stuff. Because what happens in you is you actually relive it. Do you know that? Your brain cannot separate you rethinking an event from the event happening. The same chemicals are actually being released in your brain when you're rehearsing it, when you're mowing the lawn, and you just get what? Matter and matter and matter. That's what happens to you. And I think it can be damaging to your soul. So Ephesians 4.26 puts it like this. Do not let the sun set on your wrath. Do not give place to the devil. That something happens when we're laying in bed at night and there's like a lobbed arrow, a flaming dart thrown at us and we start to rehearse the ill feelings we have towards somebody and we go to sleep with those ill feelings. To me, it's like an acid that just eats away a hole in your heart and gives a place for the enemy to jump in and look out. Be careful with this one. Love is not resentful, does not keep a record of wrong. What if in your marriage, you never brought up your spouse's past? What if you never did that? You never kept the record of wrong, right? Well, Matt, he needs to know, or she needs to know this, so I have to tell her that. Okay, whatever. Imagine for a second, though, if you can, if that works in relationship, if you never brought up the past, past wrongdoings, if you never did that, would your marriage be better or worse? That's what I think. Right? Sure, you can, you can, we can excuse anything we want, it's real easy. But I just say, what's the result of it? If I didn't bring up my wife's past or something that I didn't like, or if I didn't, would my marriage be better? Yeah, it would. Love doesn't keep a record of wrong. Does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. What if we put this over every screen we had? I'm not gonna get joy out of things that are wrong. I'm gonna get joy out of things that are truthful. What if we put that over every screen? What would happen? What could we watch, right? Because so much of what is produced now makes us joy in 
enjoy, watch, be entertained by wrongdoing, right? Violence, greed, fornication, adultery, right? Just read the list of works of the flesh. That is what is on a screen. What if he said, from now on, I'm not gonna rejoice in things that are wrong, but rather in the truth. But Matt, that's so hard. How do we do that? Is that them downstairs? They are amazing, man. I thought a speaker was going haywire on me. We have to add some insulation in somewhere. <laughs> it is. We had a great kid's wing. How do you change your appetites? Here's how I think you do it. So I have an appetite for Briar's natural vanilla ice cream. I, it goes back to the time I was a kid. My mom, the one thing that we'd have in the freezer out in our garage was Briar's natural vanilla or whatever. It was on sale at times. Sometimes it would be Lucerne or Briar's natural vanilla, but it was always there. So it's been like 40 years of me and an evening bowl of Briar's natural vanilla. But I'm realizing it's wrongdoing. So how do I break that? How do you break it? To me, here's what I found. If I will fill up on something good, I no longer have the appetite for Briar's natural vanilla. If I'll fill up on something else, then I don't want the bad anymore. So I found I have no appetite for Briar's natural vanilla after I've eaten a chocolate bar. Just that simple. <laughs> Gone. You change an appetite by eating good stuff. And you watch and see what you want begins to follow what you eat. What am I digesting? What am I bringing in? My appetites will follow that. We're not spores being blown by the wind of culture. We have a rudder and we can steer ourselves and we can choose, nope, this is what I'm gonna eat. And you'll change your appetite. Your appetites will fall in line. Does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Remember, love is people-oriented. Do you bear all things with people? Or do you go into hibernation with the wrong kind of people? Love bears all things. I think true friends are like stars. They start appearing when it gets dark. That's when true friends come out. When your life gets dark and hard, man, your true friends, they come out and they're there to bear all things. They believe all things. Billy Graham had this incredible philosophy on life. One of them was this. He believed people. He took them at face value. And so people would be like, Billy Graham, you are naive. And this is what his answer was. He goes, no, I've made a choice. I will believe people what they tell me until they prove me wrong. That's love to me, believes all things. I love that. I want the same philosophy. I'll take you at face value. I'll believe what you're saying until you prove me wrong. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Do we hope for other people or just ourselves? Because love is outward. Do we hope all things? Pray it in for other people. Love does. Endures all things. Literally in the Greek, it's understaying. True friends just stay under another friend as long as they need. My favorite example of this is this Korean war vet. Came out of the Korean war, alcoholic, drank himself to snot all the time, homeless, lived wherever, but he had one friend. And that friend on his birthday, every single year would find him no matter what it took, Plane, trains, automobiles. Find him, clean him up, get him in a suit, put him in a hotel, and take him out to dinner every single time and tell him, I love you and I will not give up on you. This went on year after year for decades. And then finally it clicked. 
someone loves me. When he quit alcohol, actually started to study the Bible, became a prolific author, passed away just a few years ago. His name, Brendan Manning. Brendan, we have Brendan Manning in some of the most like spiritual books if you read him because one man said, I will not give up on you. I will underbear you as long as it takes, year after year after year after year. It's amazing. This is love. And it takes God's spirit working in you to produce it. Now Paul gets practical. He's like, okay, I've given you that definition. Now here's a fail-proof life. If you want a fail-proof life, here's some keys that Paul says, here's what I'm doing. Love never ends. As far as prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The fail-proof life. Number one, the fail-proof life is founded on that first phrase of verse eight, love never ends. Or you could just as easily translate it, love never fails. What else besides love and Jesus and God, what else never fails? What other word could you put in there? The U.S. government never ends, never fails? Nope. Your 401k never fails? Property values never fail? My Volkswagen bus never fails? Mm -mm. There's one thing that fits. God's love for you and me, his agape for you and me, never, ever fails. And to me, the key verse on this, Romans chapter 8 Verse 39, the, the backup is so brilliant. I'll just give you the end of it. Paul's looked everywhere, spirit world, physical world, up, down, you name it, every dimension possible. And he just says this, here's what I know. Nothing can separate us from the agape, the love of God in Christ Jesus. Massive, massive phrase. His love will never fail. Why? Because you and I are in Christ Jesus. It'd be like this. Best illustration I have came from Adrian Rogers, brilliant preacher of the Bible. And he was flying home from Europe and he was going through customs and there was this man right in front of him. And the man right in front of him, the customs guy was taking his stuff apart. And he found this giant round wheel of cheese He's like looking at it and the custom officer says, um, uh, yeah, this can't come into the United States. And the man was like, well, I bought it at this place in Belgium and they assured me that it would pass through customs. The guy looks at it again, no, this can't come in the United States. And he had some kind of paper that was, hey, no, right here, it says customs, it can go through. And so the customs officer just said, listen, man, under no circumstance is that cheese coming into the United States. And the man said, oh yeah? Grabbed the cheese, got out of line, unwrapped it and just ate it right there in front of the man. Just whole chunk of cheese, got back in line and says, can it come in now? <laughs> Custom officer said, yes, it can. Listen, you and I are in Jesus Christ. Listen, there's no separation. You and I, the love of the Father is guaranteed for you and me. Not how I perform, not how great I am, not if I'm smuggling something in I shouldn't, or the reason why God's love will never fail me. One reason, because I am in Christ Jesus and the Father loves the Son. And because I'm in the Son, His love for me will never fail, right? 
This is Paul. You want a foolproof life. You begin by knowing this. The Father's love for you is secure because of your position in Christ Jesus. Love never fails. We already know that love never fails, right? Like, can death kill love? Have you ever somebody that you love die? You ever gone through like something of theirs that maybe is a memento or you're reading a journal and you find something new about them and you find that your love even grows for them? Man, I have. Something that explains them and, oh, that's why he was that way. That's why she was that way. Oh, wow. Man, I love him even more. Why is that? Because love never fails. Not even death can kill love. It's an echo of Eden in us because we know in our hearts they're not dead. They're not gone. They've just moved on. We know that. Love never fails. You know, foolproof life is founded on that. Number two, the foolproof life is verse nine. Paul says that we know in part. Then down in verse 12, he says, I know in part. Not just we collectively, I personally know in part. Paul, author of half the New Testament, missionary to the known world, had direct tutelage by Jesus himself in the desert, right? He says, I just know part of it. That is so huge to me. You want a foolproof life? No, eh, I don't know it all. How childish is it when we think we know it all? Isn't that what kids do? I remember one of my daughters one time, she was four years old. Um, I was teaching the Christmas story at her school, preschool. And so that day I was driving her, but I had some errands to run. So I go into town and we're in town and she kept saying, daddy, don't be late. Don't be late to school. I'm not gonna be late. I'm gonna, don't worry. And then finally I said, okay, let's go. So I start driving to the, her school and she looks around. Daddy, this is not the way to school. I'm like, I know mom takes a different route because we're usually at home and she drives that way. But don't worry, I'll get you to your school. She looks around again. No, daddy, this is not the way to my school. I said, sweetie, I've lived in this city since 1976. I'll get you to your class. Don't worry about it. She looked one more time. She just said, you're wrong. I'm right. And just crossed her arms and just sat there. So I pulled over and said, get out, Miss MapQuest. Find your own way. I'm not a helicopter parent. You can figure this out, right? That's what children do. I know you don't know. I'm right. You're wrong. Paul, the only superhero of the New Testament says, I only know in part. Like one of my favorite statements of this is in Romans 11. Romans is the most complete, entire, brilliant treaty of Christianity. Like it's, un, it's just unbelievable. In chapter 11 though, he just, he's done this brilliant work and just says, I don't know anything. It's verse 32 to 35. Uh, well, you know, oh, we're just beginning. I love that. Number one, I know the Father loves you. Number two, know that you're not that smart. I don't know everything. Quit dividing and arguing over anything. When I first got saved, I would argue with people about every little theological distinction. I don't do that anymore. I have three categories. Category one is what I'll divide for. And it's very small. Jesus, scriptures, sin. Those to me are the big three. Right? I will defend who Jesus is. He is God come in the flesh. I'm not going to sacrifice what this word is. It is God breathed, living, powerful. And I'm not going to redefine what sin is. I don't care what our culture says. This is what the Bible says. That's sin. Right? I'll divide. Then I have this big kind of thing that these are things that I hold dear and I'll debate with you over them. But if you disagree, nah, no, not big. You're still my brother. And then I have an even huger one that is just this giant category that's just, I don't really care. I don't think that actually changes how you and I will love our neighbor or love God or carry out the witness. Now, I have an opinion on it, no doubt, but hmm, it doesn't matter. It's not changing anything about how we will carry out the mission of Jesus Christ in the city of Grants Pass. It might be interesting and fascinating, but I don't care. It was inverted when I was younger. I just divide over all these things, debate you on these, and there's very few things I didn't care about. And the longer I live, the more I know, man, I just know in part. And really smart people believe differently than me. And they're really smart, probably a lot smarter than me. And I just say, okay, great. Right? Foolproof. 
How do you live out life? No, I just know part. I'm not gonna be arrogant. I'm not gonna be arrogant. Number three, foolproof life. Paul says this. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Foolproof life, number three. Make a pact with yourself. Put away childish things. Stop acting like a child. You guys have kids in here? I've had five of them. There's a season that I love. When they're little, they climb out of their bed in the morning, they come down and they're dragging their blanket and they've got a little bottle and they'll come up and jump on your lap as you're on the couch and they'll snuggle into you and they'll cover themselves with the blanket and they'll start sucking on their bottle. Love it when they're one or two. If my 15-year-old son Elijah does it to me tomorrow morning, I'm calling the cops, right? You're too old, bro. Put away childish things. The problem in Corinth was this. They weren't putting away childish things. Right? They love the tongues and the gifts. They're getting drunk at communion. They love the, the amazing ways that God was working through their midst and prophecy and other stuff, but they were also allowing, chapter five, gross sexual sin. They love the Bible and theology, chapter 11 tells us, but they are prideful and divisive and selfish. So Paul's saying, you gotta put that stuff away. These two can't coexist. Put away childish things. It's good discipline to say, is there somewhere I'm being childish, Lord? Would you reveal it to me? Because I don't want to be childish. It's ugly. And God will do that. Sometimes he'll use the voice of your spouse. Listen carefully. Put your phone down, listen. And say, Lord, is that true? Okay. All right. I don't want that in me anymore. And then number four, the fail-proof love life. Embrace mystery, verse 12. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And he gives this illustration of a mirror, right? For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Embrace mystery. We take it for granted that we've got these great mirrors now. Amazing, like you can really see a good reflection of yourself. Thousands of years ago, a mirror was a polished piece of metal. You ever looked at yourself in like a polished bumper? You, you, you know how you just, it, 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 you can't quite see right. It doesn't reflect you correctly. That's all the mirrors they had. Like we have mirrors all the time. Other countries don't. Many, many years ago, Charity and I were in India and we were in this van with really tinted windows. Like the kind of tinted windows you wouldn't let your daughter in that van, like that tinted. And the outside of them were, was that kind of metallic thing, you know, where the, you, it's a reflective surface. So we're, we're heading somewhere from the mission base we're at in India, and we're all loaded up in this van, and we pulled out into a two-mile traffic jam, so we just stopped. And while we're stopped there, this guy comes walking along the side of the van, and he notices like the, the shiny silver part of this window. So he just stops there and he just starts, he gets in the mirror and uh, into the window. And he starts combing his hair. And my wife was like four inches away from him, just watching him do this, like comb his hair. And then he's like looking at his teeth and he's picking stuff out of his teeth. And we're just like, no way. And then he's like pulling out nose hairs, like tink, tink, tink. We're like, oh man, why? He never has a mirror, right? We take it for granted. Here's what Paul's point is. Our best sense Nothing is higher than seeing. Direct access to the brain, right? Straight in there. Uses a massive amount of your brain to, to compute the image coming. He goes, even your best sense will fail you. It's dim. Even your best sense. Man, where's there gonna be mystery in life? Do you know that? God will give you enough for faith, but there's always gonna be questions. Like I still wrestle with like God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, predestination versus choose this day whom you will serve, right? I can go on and on. How has God existed forever, right? How was he not created? How is he not, right? There's all these things, there's mystery. Paul says, I just embrace the mystery because I'm looking through a glass dimly right now. 
and I'm okay with those mysteries. In fact, what I found is the things that are mysterious in life, they're, they, they need to be held in tension in my head. And that actually gives them strength, like a bridge, like a tension bridge. When I hold them in the right kind of tension, God's sovereignty, my responsibility, predestination, my choice, when I hold them in the right biblical tension, man, it's strong. It's actually strong. So when I leave, let, let that tension go, try to eliminate the mystery, that's when I actually wobble and shake. Man, a foolproof life embraces the mystery. And then Paul just ends. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. We need faith. Hebrews 11.1, 1, without faith is impossible to please God. Gotta have faith. And we need hope. Hope is two things. It's expectation and it's desire. That's biblical hope, right? There are things that I desire, but I don't expect to happen. I'd love to be the quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, but I don't expect it to happen. Uh, Purdy's better than me. There are things that I expect to happen that I don't desire to happen. When I'm speeding, I expect to be pulled over by a cop, but I don't desire that. Hope is the both of those. It's desiring and expectation, both of them combined. It's, it's fuel for our soul. We need those, but we require love. It is under it all. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Deuteronomy 6, 4, the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and strength. How shall all men know you are my disciples? By your T-shirts and your bumper stickers and your Bibles and your crosses and your churches. No. Nope. By your love, one for another. 1 John 4, how do we know that we've passed from life to death? How do we know we're saved? By your love, your agape for the brothers. I can go on and on and on. Love's required. May God's spirit even today be working into the fabric of our being, agape love. Jesus today. Your life is a perfect illustration of agape love. I pray for each of us as we walk out these doors that we be strongly secure in your agape for us and we begin to be conduits, not containers of that love, but conduits for those that are around us. So fill, empower us even now with your spirit to produce agape love. And we ask this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.